IBM announces its Quantum Roadmap. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Robert Suter, author, speaker, and vice president of Quantum Ecosystem Development at IBM Research. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back. Remind us what you do at IBM Research in the areas of quantum computing. Well, uh, let me put IBM Research into context just a little bit. Um, so IBM is over 350,000 people. Roughly 1% of that is IBM Research. And so while people think of R&D, this is R. And so many, many of these people have uh, advanced degrees, PhDs frequently in a, in a wide range of disciplines that somehow relate to, uh, obviously you expect computers and it could be hardware, it could be software. Um, I've uh, spent two stints in, in IBM research. Um, this last one, I came back after being on the business side, I led the mathematical sciences department, except that um, about four years ago, I realized that we were really getting serious about the quantum computing program, which combined physics, mathematics, and computer science. And it looked like an awful lot of fun to me. Um, and so I, I gravitated myself career-wise over toward that. And so um, I, I think one way of describing what I do is um, I have uh, years of business experience as well as years of being a leader in IBM research on the science side. And so I try to bring these together to help in whatever way I can uh, to accelerate what we're doing within the quantum program. Well, I can't imagine you staying away from anything fun, Bob, uh, considering who you are. So speaking on that, IBM just announced their roadmap for quantum computing. Tell us about it. Well, so we've announced a roadmap which says that uh, in 2023, by the end of 2023, we expect to have a quantum computer with over 1,000 qubits. Now, there's something very interesting about roadmaps. Um, anyone can say, hey, we're going to do this in the future. And, well, does anyone ever remember that's what they said they're going to do? But you have to have a roadmap that is technically believable. So what backs up your saying that, uh, as we did, well, next year we'll have a quantum device with over 100 qubits, then over 400 qubits, then over of the next year over a thousand qubits, eventually with the goal of getting to uh, a million qubits. Uh, there are many things that have to go into it, but our proof is what we've done before. Our ability to consistently make more and more powerful and larger quantum computers. So it's given us enough confidence to say, we believe we can tackle the science, we can tackle the engineering so that at that schedule, we'll be able to accomplish those things. As IBM scales up the number of qubits, what happens then to quantum advantage? So quantum advantage is the point where quantum computers can do significantly better than what classical computers can, can do alone. Um, and also to be clear, when, when I refer to a quantum computing system, it really is classical systems plus quantum computers, you know, they work together as systems. There's storage, uh, there's memory on the classical side and things like this. So, so quantum computers themselves are not gonna completely replace classical computers, they'll, they will work together. So think of it as what are the problems that are intractable we just cannot do today with classical computers. 
but with the addition of uh, large enough quantum computers, we'll be able to make some headway and actually do things that we thought were impossible or frankly, were never going to be possible with just classical systems. Uh, now, what this does <laughs> is, of course, uh, you have to have a large enough and a powerful enough quantum computer. Uh, for a long time, uh, 50 was a magic number for quantum computing, where we felt there was going to be this, this threshold. Well, we have surpassed this. Others have surpassed this. Um, we, uh, on September 1st, released a 65 qubit machine. The next really big target is 1,000, because then we can start thinking about error correction and fault tolerance and start to do um, at least the beginnings of some of the, the classical algorithms that people have been devising over the last few decades. So I guess I would phrase it this way, is that once we get to uh, 1,000 qubits and have the technology to push even higher than that, people can make uh, very serious assaults on trying to get to quantum advantage, at least initially in some special cases. So speaking of that, do you find hmm. that as the quality of the qubit increases, that it takes less of them to do the same work? No, it, it, it's, it's not that you can use fewer qubits. It's that as the quality of the qubits, and, and here, uh, to be honest, that, that's a very vague statement, what this means. Basically, uh, qubits operate within a quantum device. There is noise, there is error that comes into the system from the environment in different ways. So what you're trying to do is reduce that noise and reduce the error. Uh, so it's not a question of more qubits just by itself lets you do better. The, when the quality improves, and we measure this with quantum volume, it means you can do more with the number of qubits that you have. So instead of being able to, let's say, do something with a dozen steps, you can do something with 20 steps and 30 steps and 40 steps and things like that. So as quantum volume improves, as well as the number of qubits, we can tackle larger problems because we have more horsepower to bring to it and, and more qubits to apply to the problem as well. You and I have discussed IBM's quantum computers in previous interviews. In mm -hmm. fact, I remember showing photos of these beautiful, richly glowing, almost steampunk, if you will, looking boxes that were right. larger than refrigerators, Bob. But for this interview, you sent me photos of, of packaged <laughs> ICs that look as conventional as those in my laptop. So tell us a, yeah. a little about your advancements in fabricating a quantum computer. Well, I thought you were going someplace else there with the super fridge, but, and I'm sure we're going to get to that. I think people have this idea that, that quantum computers are these crazy wired up lab experiments, right? Uh, you know, and their cables just going all over the place and odd refrigerators, and somehow there's this super sci-fi or steampunk, as you say, device. But, you know, a, a big part of the advancement is everything we've known to come and expect in, in fabrication. These are chips. They have to fit on circuit boards. They have to fit within a computer system regarding the electronics, the microwave control, and things like this. They have to be reproducible, right? We don't just make one chip and hope for the best. We have to develop new methods of fabricating these chips so that ultimately we can create many of them and that we call the yield is good, 
So the yield is not just how many chips you produce, it's how many good chips you produce. And we learn things with every generation. So I mentioned some numbers before. Um, right now, the two main systems uh, that we have for uh, the, what we call the premium users in the IBM Q networks are 27 qubit machines and the new 65 qubit machine. We've learned a tremendous amount about the architecture, the topology, and this also goes to how we construct the chips. So yeah, they uh, the, the 65 qubits hummingbird. It, it looks like a looks like a beautiful square golden chip, and it even has a little picture of a hummingbird on it. So um, we're 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 not in wild experimental Kansas anymore, um, as as far as these chips go. So. The steampunk super fridge is towards yeah. the end of the roadmap, right? I mean, talk about that. Yeah, so um, for people who have seen photos of our, uh, what we call the superconducting transmon qubits, uh, these have to be kept at close to absolute zero. Uh, in, in fact, 0 0.015 degrees Kelvin. Uh, outer space is about 2.7 degrees Kelvin. So it's, it's much, much colder than outer space. Now, we have largely tackled this problem. It, it, it is not, if you will, hard to keep things that cold, and you can get off-the-shelf technology to do that. That is one of the innovations that the industry has done over the last decade or, or so that has enabled us to really make the, these quantum computers. Now, the, the fridges, which is short for dilution refrigerator, which uh, has to do with the method of cooling, the big ones we have now, they're maybe four feet tall and two and a half feet wide. Um, they, they look like upside down white canisters, basically. And then the quantum device is there at the very bottom. And inside there's cooling and there's electronics. And if you've seen the photos, uh, the chandelier, if you will. So we have right now, as I mentioned, 65 qubits in one. And we believe we can fit 127 qubits in there. And we believe we can fit 433 qubits in there. Now, they're not exactly the size, they won't be the size they are now because miniaturization is a natural part of developing hardware. So we have already come up with ways of using fewer cables. Over time, qubits will get smaller and smaller and smaller along with the, the error rates of these qubits. So we will be packing more and more qubits into these fridges that we have, but we will reach a limit. You know, there's, there's just so much you can do here. And so we have started to build what we call the super fridge. Uh, we had our ACE marketing people get together in that name. No, I'm, I'm joking. It was the technical team. Uh, and I was trying to think of you, Superman, super bad, super fridge, uh, I don't know. It's a really big dilution refrigerator or freezer. So instead of being about four by two and a half, this thing is nine feet tall. And it is about, um, I haven't been able to physically see it, but I've, I've seen the photos. Let's say it's about five feet across. And either when we get to a thousand qubits or maybe soon thereafter, we may be able with miniaturization cram a thousand into the smaller ones, but we'll definitely need something larger. And so here, I, I want you to think about this transition happening, say, between now and the end of five years from now. So as we get to 1,000 and beyond. You see the quantum chips now. I then want you to think of quantum motherboards. So more things that have to exist at close to absolute zero. 
all of these refrigerated or freezers really are circular, they're cylindrical, right? So unlike the motherboard in your computer, they're round motherboards. And we will pack a certain number of qubits on that and they will talk to each other and we will talk to them from the outside, both from the top and the bottom, right? And that, that's new and different. And then we'll think of start layering these, stacking them. So if people think of an old style hard drive, you know, not the solid state ones we have now, where there were platters, disks that, that you know, you'd store information on, we could imagine having multiple stacked quantum motherboards. And through this and continued innovation, we will cram more and more and more into those and we will get eventually thousands and thousands and thousands of qubits at some schedule, we haven't announced that part, um, inside this super fridge. And that's how we're going to do it. Okay, Bob, how do IBM's quantum accomplishments translate into real world benefits for the typical business leader trying to hit next quarter's numbers? So right now, it is still very much the case that there is nothing you can do with a quantum computer today that you can't otherwise do with a classical computer. Now, there are some things related to randomness that our partner, Cambridge Quantum Computing, uh, did. Um, it's a better way of producing random numbers, but it's not, for example, um, finding new molecules, right? Eventually finding new antibiotics or more efficient catalysts to crack uh, petroleum products, right? Uh, more sustainable things, things like this. Uh, however, this takes time. This is a radically new type of technology. This is not classical computing 2.0. The jump from classical computers to quantum computing is far greater than from regular general classical computing to GPUs. Right? which started for video games, but now are mostly used, frankly, for, for AI, particularly as they exist on the cloud. Um, because GPUs are classical computers. And while people have done brilliant jobs and brilliant things with those, it's not a completely different computing model. It takes time to learn this. Um, it takes time to educate people. It takes time for people to develop brand new algorithms. You don't take what you did on classical computer and plop it on a quantum computer and say, hey, great, we're done. It's fast. No, it's a completely different way of thinking about these things. So it's very much about being an early adopter and what's that, you know, is that important to you? And so we do think chemistry applications will still be some of the first areas for quantum advantage because that's simulating physical systems. Quantum computing is built on quantum mechanics, which is how all the very little things like electrons work and photons and, and things like that. So that's perfectly logical. Many things are chemistry, <laughs> material science, eventually, as I said, antibiotics. Um, fighting corrosion in alloys is very useful for many things. Coming up with new lithium kinds of batteries is very important. Electric cars, electric airplanes, all, all sorts of things like this. Uh, financial services, new optimization algorithms, new simulation algorithms to assess risk, right? Those are the things that people are really working on because they're very important to those industries. But this is where I think a lot of people um, stop thinking about it. The techniques we develop for those industries, on one hand, financial services and the other chemistry related, are often going to be translatable 
to different industries. So if we can do far, far more efficient Monte Carlo-like simulations that we might develop for finance, we can use that in half a dozen, a dozen other industries as well. So think of it this way, that um, people are trying to get early market advantage today. They're trying to be first out there for their own business advantage when the machines are powerful enough. And then I think we will very quickly see these techniques spread. And then there'll be a generation of newer and better spread a generation of newer and better and spread. And this is why it's so fascinating to see over the next five, 10, 15 years, how this will play out. Dr. Robert Suter, author, mm -hmm. speaker, and vice president of quantum ecosystem development at IBM Research. Robert, thanks so much for joining us and giving us the latest update on quantum computing at IBM. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that, Bob? Well, the best way is probably on LinkedIn. I, I am on Twitter as Snarky Android. It's a long story, but uh, if you want to just look for Robert Sutor on, on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to connect with people and answer questions about quantum as well. Okay, we're gonna have to give you. We're gonna have to get that story the next time. Then, uh, okay. Thanks again for joining us, Bob. My pleasure. And find more of my interviews right here, or at TanyaHall.net. Thanks for watching.